everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Had kind of a weird morning. I was cleaning out my freezer, and I found a old box of Junior Mints that I'd put in there I don't even remember when. I had totally forgotten about them, and it was kind of a nice surprise. So I was like, oh, hello, Junior Mints. And the Junior Mints were like, actually, it's just mints now. And I was like, oh, I get it, because you've been in the freezer for so long. Ha ha. And the Junior Mints were like, no, my dad died. So it's just mints now. And I was like, oh, God, I'm, I'm so sorry. And the Junior Mints, um, I'm sorry, Mints, were like, thanks. I mean, we weren't that close, but still, he was my dad. And it was just really awkward. Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Neil Butler. Most cable modems conform to a standard called Doxis. They let you download podcasts so you can hear Hub Synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Neil. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 22, July 1986. Okay, so this issue has like three separate Titan stories, plus a prologue and an epilogue, and there are a few different creative teams. So I'm going to do the story credits and the Teen Titan roll calls for each story as we get to them, after I do the previously in the new Teen Titans bit. Speaking of which, previously in the new Teen Titans. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Raven. After briefly being possessed by Trigon, her extra-dimensional bad dad who lived in her bird-shaped soul tummy, the avian-themed Azerathian empath killed Trigon, died, was mysteriously resurrected, met a farmer with a weird half-hat, and was held hostage by a village of lepers. With the help of the aforementioned half-hatted farmer and a kind-hearted leper, Raven's mom Arella was able to track her daughter to the leper colony, but as soon as she arrived, acolytes of the Church of Blood, an evil cult that worships an occasionally dead but surprisingly spry Septicentarian, showed up and kidnapped both mother and daughter, taking them both to the church's compound on the Baltic island nation of Zandia. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Starfire. After years of exile, the fire-haired space princess brought her boyfriend Nightwing home to the planet of Tamaran for a visit. When they arrived, Coriander was shocked to learn that her shitty father, King Meander, had arranged for her to marry a dude named Captain Papadopoulos in order to quell the civil unrest caused by the fact that he was a shitty king. Heartbroken at the distress it caused both her and Nightwing, but hoping to forestall a bloody Tamaranian war, Starfire reluctantly went through with the ceremony. But as soon as the nuptials were concluded, rebel forces led by Starfire's evil but delightfully named sister, Princess Commander, seized control of the planet. Starfire and her family were loaded onto a spaceship headed to Okara, home of the warlords who had trained the spicy space princess in combat. Commander blew up the spaceship before it reached its destination, but, unbeknownst to her, the royal family escaped at the last minute and continued their journey to Okara on some space lifeboats or whatever. Once they landed, Starfire and her new husband, Prince Papadopoulos, began training and plotting their revenge. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Nightwing. 
After spending a bad birthday in space, sullenly nursing a cup of coffee while he watched his ex-girlfriend and her new husband train and plot their revenge, the angst-ridden acrobat returned to Earth to find our titular team of teenagers in a state of disarray. After lashing out at Wonder Girl for what he perceived to be poor leadership, the former boy Wonder quit the team and vowed to rescue Raven on his own. Nightwing traveled to Zandia to infiltrate the Church of Blood, a task he had attempted once before on a previous mission. That earlier effort had proven unsuccessful as he was spotted immediately and brainwashed by the church's matriarchal majordomo, Mother Mayhem. But this time, the aerial adventurist had a secret weapon. The ability to grow a beard. Despite this seemingly impenetrable disguise, the Church of Blood security staff recognized Dick almost immediately, but for reasons of their own, allowed him to proceed with his mission. Under cover of night, the newly hirsute crime fighter made his way to the cell the embattled empath shared with Arella. But when he kicked open the door, Dick found something about Raven's appearance very disturbing. It's been a pretty rough, indeterminate amount of comic book time for Beast Boy. The animal avatar assuming adolescent learned that his stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, was suffering from a debilitating addiction to wearing a magic hat. The reality-warping headgear in question was called the Mentos Helmet, so I call it the Freshmaker, and repeated use of it had caused Steve to flip his proverbial wig. After being coerced into donning the confusion-causing cap by conman-slash-conjurer John Constantine during the Crisis on Infinite Earths, the perturbed plutocrat now blamed Beast Boy for the death of Doom Patrol, and believed that only by murdering his stepson could he gain closure. So Steve used the Freshmaker to attack the Titans. Beast Boy fought his frenzied father figure to a standstill, but his best buddy Cyborg nearly died in the battle. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Cyborg. After fending off an attack by the Freshmaker, the mostly molybdenum Marvel nearly died and required emergency life-saving surgery, which infused his already roboticized body with a heaping helping of nonsensium, the miraculous metal some call Prometheum, which has a plethora of plot-determined properties. The surgery was a success, but a partly robot protagonist still needed time to recover both mentally and physically from the procedure. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Jericho. The mutton chop mutant hasn't appeared and has barely been mentioned in the past four issues, which has gotta take its toll on a guy. Gadzooks! How has Jericho been spending his sabbatical from superheroics? What did Dick find so distressing about Raven's appearance? And will it be weird hearing the creative credits and Teen Titan roll call after the previously in the new Teen Titans bit instead of before it? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so painting landscapes staring wistfully into the middle distance and eating pasta. The fact that she was smiling. And, honestly, a little. Prologue. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call Jericho! Jericho is hanging out at his mom's house. He helps her do some skeet shooting and starts painting a picture. His mom tells him he should go inside and eat some pasta because it's probably going to rain soon. Dick's Story This one has the same creative team as the prologue did. Teen Titan Roll Call, Nightwing, Raven, 
Zach Wingman, but he's not really a Teen Titan, plus he's only in like one panel and doesn't really do or say anything, which is why I didn't mention anything about him in the previously in the new Teen Titans part. Dick Grayson stares at Raven and appears flabbergasted. He's like, what the fuck, Raven? You look happy. That's not your thing. Also, now your bird robe is white instead of black, which is weird because when I came into this cell last issue, it was definitely still black. What gives? Raven is like, Hey, chill out, frowny puss. Everything's cool. Now that my demon dad isn't hanging out in my soul tummy anymore, I don't have to keep my emotions in check. Neat, huh? Now get over here, you big silly billy, so that I can use my magic to make all your sad feelings go away. Nightwing is more than a little freaked out by this. From the corner of her cell, Arella is like, Hey, Dick! Good call on being freaked out. Raven is totally brainwashed and stuff. Probably best if you don't hug her. Just then, Mother Mayhem and a bunch of her church goons bust in and are like, Surprise! We're here to take you captive so as we can brainwash you. Dick doesn't much care for this plan and beats up a bunch of the goons. But then, one of them bops him on the noodle and down he goes. Mayhem and her followers drag Dick to a bigger, creepier room with more demon statues. Mother Mayhem supplies the exposition that Dick has been mostly brainwashed since the last time they took him prisoner like a year ago. They programmed him to be a sleeper agent for the Church of Blood, only lately, he's been subconsciously rebelling against his conditioning, which is why he's been acting like such an angsty turd lately. Huh. I thought it was just the super shitty birthday that sent him over the edge. Mayhem calls in a dude in a demonic hazmat suit named The Confessor to re-torture Dick and give his brain a thorough re-scrubbing. The Confessor puts on a Nintendo Power Glove and grabs Nighthawk's face with it. Seems like it's pretty painful, because as soon as the Confessor starts in with a face grab, Dick wakes up and starts yelling shit. Mother Mayhem explains that this process is sometimes a little bit on the fatal side, and it'd be a real help if Raven could take away her erstwhile teammates' pain so that they can keep going. Raven is like, Okie dokie! and does as she is told. A few minutes later, the Confessor is finished, and heads back to his room to meditate, and probably play a round of Super Glove Ball, or Bad Street Brawler, or something. Bye, the Confessor! Later that evening, Mother Mayhem goes and fetches Arella. The agonized Azerathian pleads for the perfidious priestess to let Dick and Raven go, but Mayhem is like, Nothing doing, and takes Arella to the church's main hall, where there's some kind of a big ceremony that's about to take place. A whole bunch of people are standing around a big statue of Brother Blood and chanting about how great they think he is. Zack Wingman's there, standing awkwardly next to the statue. Hi, Zack. Arella seems confused about what's going on, but her confusion turns to horrified shock when she notices that amongst the throng of acolytes chanting in praise of the occasionally dead sanguinary septicentennial, two of the loudest, most enthusiastic voices are those belonging to Raven and Dick Grayson. Sisters. Written by Marf Wolfman, drawn by Rick Leonardi, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call. Starfire! On the planet of Tamaran, newly crowned Queen Commander takes a break from running shit to watch some gladiatorial games. Things seem to be going pretty well since she assumed power, so Commander is in a pretty good mood. 
So good a mood, in fact, that when one of the warriors triumphs over his opponent and is like, Hey, queen, should I kill this guy? She's like, nah, don't kill that guy. Maybe be pals with him instead or something. Weird. Meanwhile, on Okara, Starfire and Prince Papadopoulos are training hard with the space yeti Jedi monks who live there. Starfire's pretty sure that they're ready to go back to reconquer Tamaran from her sister, but the rest of her family is pretty noncommittal about it. Back on Tamaran, a counselor informs Commander that their spies have just learned that the royal family is significantly less dead than initial reports had suggested. Commander isn't too stoked about that. The evil queen dials up Okara on her space phone and is like, Hey jerks, I'm pretty pissed that you guys are still unmurdered, but I'm a reasonable tyrannical overlord. So I'll give you 12 hours to get back to Tamaran so that I can murder you for real. And if you're late for your murder appointment, then I'll, I don't know, do something. And just to show you that I'm serious, I'm going to blow up an unoccupied city that we have lying around for some reason. There. Okay, see you soon. Starfire and the rest of the gang on Okara decide to decline Commander's offer to murder them, and instead ready themselves to launch their attack on Tamaran. Well, that's what most of the gang on Okara does anyway. King Meander is like, You know, I'm really more of a capitulator than a fighter, so I'm just gonna stay here and mope if it's all the same to you. But hey, if it turns out there's a way for me to somehow barter your autonomy and or happiness for political gain, just let me know, cause I am super good at that. Back on Tamaran, Commander goes about the business of governing the planet as she prepares for war. There's a little montage of her ordering people around and redistributing resources and trying to establish diplomatic relations with former enemies. Between that stuff and the fact that Commander has a strained relationship with her father, it's kind of like an episode of Space West Wing, only without all the American exceptionalism. Before long, Starfire and her forces arrive on Tamaran and start blowing stuff up and fighting Commander's army. Each sister blames the other for the war and swears vengeance, not only for their sake, but on behalf of all of Tamaran. Also, turns out one of the cities where the fighting is taking place is called Cinnamon. See, now I just feel like Marv Wolfman is using his spice rack to troll me. Friends and Foes Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Tom Mandrake, inked by Tom Mandrake, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Beast Boy, Cyborg. Beast Boy and Cyborg are hanging out outside the Titan Tower and being sad together. Beast Boy is bummed out because it seems like the Titans are falling apart as a team and he misses the camaraderie they once enjoyed. Cyborg is bummed out about all that stuff, plus he's still all banged up from his recent surgery and isn't too happy about that either. Gar confides that he's still worried about his stepdad Steve. Cyborg mentions that Dayton's descent into magic hat-related mania began during the Crisis on Infinite Earths, when some British guy named John Constantine made him do some magic or something to help him save the world, and it kind of broke Steve's brain. Good to know. Speaking of the old broken-brained freshmaker, a couple thousand miles away atop the carving of George Washington on Mount Rushmore, Steve Dayton sits and impatiently waits for the arrival of John Constantine, whose name is definitely pronounced Constantine and not Constantine, despite what certain people have been led to believe for their entire lives. 
Steve thinks about the fact that he's put together a group called The Hybrid, which he plans on turning into the new Doom Patrol. The Bunkers billionaire doesn't elaborate on exactly who or what the hybrid are, so I guess we're left to assume that they're probably like Doom Patrol, but with better gas mileage. Anyway, Steve gets bored waiting, so he turns the Freshmaker up to 11 and amuses himself by sending his brain 2,000 miles east and taking over Cyborg's body. Damn it, Freshmaker! I know you're bored, but I'm sure there's plenty of other things you could do in South Dakota for entertainment. There's a... Corn. Oh, and that one drugstore. Back in New York, Cyborg is alarmed to find himself rising out of his wheelchair and launching an unprovoked attack on his emerald ally. Beast Boy dodges the initial blast and pretty quickly figures out what's going on. I mean, he figures it out because Cyborg tells him, and then Steve speaking through Cyborg tells him again, but this is Gar we're talking about, so I'm still a little bit impressed that he figures it out so quickly. The shape-shifting teen briefly tries to talk some sense into his body-snatching stepdad, but soon realizes that sense is a foreign language that the Freshmaker is not currently able to parse. Changing tactics, Beast Boy changes into a veritable menagerie of green animals, gently kicking and punching his possessed partly Promethean pal, but trying not to hurt him too badly. Dayton makes Vic take control of the Titan's T-Jet and announces his intention to destroy our titular teenager's T-shaped skyscraper with it. But at the last minute, Gar is able to turn into a giant green orangutan and disable the aircraft, knocking Victor unconscious. Hooray! Before departing Cyborg's body, Steve tells Gar that he was only goofing around. He wasn't really trying to kill the duo of do-gooders. Yet. He plans on using his new team, the Hybrid, to do that as their first official mission. Fair enough. Just be careful how you deploy that new team, Steve. I know you'll be saving a few bucks on gas, but hybrids can be pretty expensive to repair. You pretty much have to take them back to the dealership or you're going to avoid the warranty. As Vic and Gar recover from their battle, Steve returns what little remains of his mind to his corporeal form atop Mount Rushmore. He sees that John Constantine has finally arrived for their agreed-upon meeting. The silk-cut smoking sorcerer apologizes for his tardiness, but Dayton tells him not to worry. He had no difficulty keeping himself entertained. Epilogue. This has the same creative team as the prologue and Dick story. Teen Titan Roll Call. Jericho. Jericho finishes up his painting, despite the fact that it is starting to rain pretty hard. It's a picture of a landscape on a sunny day. Joe stares wistfully into the middle distance and resolves to do whatever it takes to keep the Titans together as a team. Then he heads inside to eat some pasta and lets the rain wash the paint from his canvas. Whoa. Deep. Hey, now that her bird robe is white instead of black, should we keep calling Raven Raven? Or should we start calling her, like, Seagull or Whooping Crane or Egret or something? Wait a minute, she's not going to get suddenly way less competent and start insisting that we call her Dove, is she? And joining us once again, having returned from his journey to another dimension, which he accidentally found himself in after vibrating at a different frequency from the rest of the universe because he had too much coffee, is my good-for-many-things brother. Corey, how's it going? Hey, I am still caffeinated. It's otherwise going okay. It's been a rough while for everybody. Yeah, it's been a uh, pretty... 
shitty time both globally and locally. And then on top of that, I threw my back out the other day. So Oof. I haven't really slept in a couple of days and have also had some uh, muscle relaxants and uh, too much caffeine. So should be an interesting show. That's ought to be a real treat for our listeners. Yeah. What I'm hoping is going on is that I've got a trick back that can tell when there's a storm a-brewing. I think that'd be a pretty neat time. I mean, in a perfect world, if I'm going to have a trick back, I would rather be at the kind of trick back that has like a hollowed out place where I can keep some snacks and then I could be lighter so I might be able to fly. But, you know, I'll take what I can get. Hmm. So, (laughs) flight and snack storage versus it hurts when there's a storm a-brewing. So, no, it's not ideal, but, you know, <laughs> you, you got to deal with the trick back that you got, not the one you want. Yeah, truer words have seldom been spoken about trick anything. <laughs> well, uh, you want to talk about a comic book? I think we should. Corey, what do you think of this comic book? I enjoyed that it was broken up into the segments so we could see a little bit more focus on the, the Dick and Raven story, the starfire and commander story and then also a uh, beast boy and cyborg and the fresh maker yeah i enjoyed aspects of it too it felt a little bit disjointed because it was a little bit disjointed you had really it said three different stories but there's also the bookends with jericho and his mom so really four different stories happening that are pretty cleanly divided It felt like a lot was happening in this issue, but also like not that much really happened. Kind of a uh, setting the table kind of issue. The point of the issue seemed to be, okay, let's get all of the pieces on the table. And then when that's done, we'll let things play out. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it all coming back together. I was also a little bit thrown by the noticeable difference in the art teams. I don't know if it's just the pencils or what, but... uh... It was noticeable. It definitely was. Yeah, each of the three main segments had a different art team. The book ended prelude and epilogue and the Dick and Raven story were done by Eduardo Barreto and Romeo Tangal. And the Starfire one had Rick Leonardi as the penciler, but still Romeo Tangal as the inker and the rest of the creative team was the same. And then the Beast Boy and Cyborg and Freshmaker story had a guy named Tom Mandrake doing both the pencils and the inks. And that one definitely had the most different feel. But with each one of them, the fact that it had a different feel to it and a different art team kind of made sense because they were telling different kinds of stories with different settings. So it didn't bother me as much as I think it might have otherwise. It makes sense, but it was still weird because it's especially in that final story the depictions of both beast boy and cyborg were just like a little bit i don't know off from how i'm used to seeing them yeah i absolutely know what you mean about that that story had some of my favorite artwork and then also some of my least favorite artwork i think both of my favorite panels actually come from that story but there were a couple of panels that were also noticeably my least favorite panels in the book so Let's break it down and talk really quickly about the prologue and epilogue and then just kind of run through and give our thoughts on each of the other three stories. Does that make sense? Sounds good. Okay. 
So prologue and epilogue, not really a lot going on. Uh, Jericho does some chores, paints a picture, eats some pasta, and misses his friends. Any thoughts on that? Um, I enjoyed watching his mom shoot skeet at the beginning. And then in the closing bookend, I was very annoyed at Jericho for leaving his finished or partially finished painting in the rain (laughs) as he goes off to sulk. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, I get the metaphor or whatever here, but who are you leaving to clean up that <laughs> after you? Right, maybe it's the people who are cooking the pasta your mom was talking about or something, but it's still very uncool, even if you have staff for that. Yeah, I fully agree. I could do without that MacArthur Park shit. Don't leave that cake out in the rain. You're going to attract raccoons and somebody's got to clean it up. So yeah, I wasn't crazy about that. Also... Kind of anticlimactic, honestly, where we haven't seen Jericho in like three issues and we were told that he's been helping his mom out on some missions and nah, turns out he's just been, you know, throwing clay pigeons in the air for her to shoot and painting a picture, eating some spaghetti carbonara. It's fine. Nice to see Adeline Kane, I guess. I feel like every time we see her, she looks more and more like a caricature of a 1980s divorced woman. But yeah, whatever. It does appear in some of the scenes like she's smoking a really big joint. Like (laughs) it's supposed to be a cigarette, but it's drawn in different ways with different perspectives. And and there's one where it's it's drawn in what looks like a very large and hand-rolled fashion. It's like, man, is she getting high and shooting shotguns? That's like a seems dangerous. I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be smoking like Virginia Slims, like a you've come a long way, baby. But they're not standard length cigarettes. They're at least 100s. Look at her. It's the panel that's the one right before um, it cuts to the Brother Blood castle that's all shown in red. Oh. And she's holding it and she looks high (laughs) as hell. Dude, you're totally right. I was looking at the panel above that. But yeah, and that one, that is a fatty. So (laughs) It's bigger than her fingers. Yeah, she either suddenly switched to a cigar or, yeah, maybe she is smoking Virginia Slims. And then she also has a joint going uh, because she wants to have a good appetite for the spaghetti carbonara. That could be. What did you think of Dick's story? I don't know. He kind of is continuing to do not a great job falling into essentially the same sort of trap that he fell into last time. He went to Brother Bloods. Brainwashed Raven, I think, is is kind of an interesting way to take things. I feel bad for that character, though, because things beyond her control, these external influences keep putting her in terrible spots, you know? And like I just am starting to feel bad for the character always being in these kind of tragic circumstances, even though it's kind of interesting now that she's like this brainwashed, you know, bad guy who's teaming up with Brother Blood. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that her character twist and how you know something is wrong is that there is warmth in her voice and she is smiling. I think that makes for kind of a fun twist. And I also think it seems like that wasn't where this was going beforehand, or maybe it was in Mm. general terms was set up in the last issue, but specifically the fact that she is suddenly wearing all white and that Dick didn't notice that when he first saw her last issue, but now does. Like, all we could see of her in the last issue was her costume, 
And it was definitely still her old black costume then. And now, oh no, I didn't notice before, but it turns out you're wearing bright white. That seemed like a pretty abrupt pivot. Yeah, he was just so freaked out by how happy she seemed, like in his face in that panel when they first meet. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious because he's just, he looks like he's like, what? I know, especially because in the last issue, we saw that what he says when he first sees her is, what, what happened to you? Like, you definitely got the impression that her face was going to be all like scarred or something, or she was just going to be looking super haggard. But it's just that she looks kind of happy, I think. This is the part that's kind of tough because clearly Raven is supposed to be drawn differently than she is normally drawn. Like whether it is making her look happy or whether there are some physical changes in her face. But this is also the first time we've seen Eduardo Barreto draw her. Like I think when she's appeared in his comics before, it's just been a hooded shrouded figure. So when we see him draw her face for the first time and the characters are saying, you look so different, there is that weird thing where it's like, yeah, she does look different because last time we saw her, it was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez drawing her. So it makes kind of a, I don't know, almost a meta narrative about the comic that I don't think was intentional. She also looks the same, if not slightly older in age than her mom. Yeah. I definitely noticed that as well, and I wasn't sure if that's supposed to be one of the changes in her appearance. Tough to tell. I mean, maybe she's just, you know, she's got those smile lines, so she never had those before, so she looks older. I think there is maybe a concerted effort to draw all of the heroes looking a little bit older. Like we saw before that Dick turned 20, he's not supposed to be a teenager anymore. I think maybe Raven is supposed to have the same thing happening here. Yeah, that could be. So one of the other bits of this story that I thought, hmm, okay, so we're giving Dick essentially a pass now uh, because Mother Mayhem says, okay, he's he's been being an asshole the last few issues. I mean, she doesn't say it that literally, but it's implied because we've been trying to control his mind and it sucks for him. <laughs> and that's why he's been being such a jerk to everybody. He lashes out at all around him as a result of his mental battle. I don't appreciate this retconning of Dick just being a dick. <laughs> but my point is, so moving forward after he escapes the uh, brainwashing, is he just going to be, like, really considerate? Yeah, just super chill. I don't see that happening. It would be a surprise. I think that pattern of behavior on his part dates back longer than a year. Because, yeah, that would be... He would have been acting that way basically since he first became Nightwing. And, I mean, the worst of his behavior of the very similar type that he's displaying here was when he was palling around with World's Worst District Attorney Adrian Chase. And that was definitely when he was still Robin. So, I don't know about this shit. I also really hope he's not, like, a little bit awake when she says that, because, you know, every time... <laughs> He does something a little bit questionable. He's like, oh, sorry. It's from when I was brainwashed, and um, it makes me <laughs> lash out at people. Oh, man. I want that excuse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've been fighting this mental battle between evil mind control and, you know, just being a good, good guy. I think that might supplant my favorite current excuse, which is to just shrug my shoulders and say, there's this prophecy. You know how it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Also, I did notice that Raven is not the only Teen Titan in this story that has a wardrobe change because in the last issue, Dick was wearing a brown, like UPS looking uniform with a deep open V-neck on it. And in this issue, it's now like olive green, which makes him go from looking like a UPS driver to looking like somebody hired a Fidel Castro themed stripper. <laughs> Cause he's got his disguise beard too, but he's got like this, like, yeah, these, these army fatigues that are like unbuttoned to his navel. That is a good point. I picture him just rolling up to the church of blood and setting up a boom box that plays like a dance remix of the internationale and just saying, did somebody order a revolution? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was probably his plan. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. In which case, good plan. Uh, it's a shame that everything he's done for the past year has been a Machiavellian scheme on the part of the Church of Blood. Yeah, I hate that shit. Yeah, I know. He doesn't get a pass for doing coffee sulking on his birthday and all that other stuff. He doesn't get a pass for that. And also, the Church of Blood if that is their plan, if it is that fucking deep, they fucked up big time. What was the point of having to fake Brother Blood's death and losing that whole fight? Or did Brother Blood actually die? Because it looks like they're trying to resurrect him. That kind of needlessly complicated evil scheme, it can be fun in small doses, but when it's constantly what you're going back to, especially with the Church of Blood, it just starts to get on my nerves. No, it's, we've been complaining of needlessly complicated plots for a little while now. Yeah, I think about five years or so now. The other thing that I wanted to touch on in the Dick story is there's a character called the Confessor in it, who I think we maybe saw briefly before, but he has a line that really cracked me up. As he is leaving, he's like acting all broody and shit. He's just reasserted control over Dick's brain. He has this like weird giant robot glove that he attaches his hand to Dick's face. And he uses that to do his mind control shit, mental subjugation through pain. As he leaves, he says, I'm no longer needed. Therefore, I go to meditate on why mine has become the hand of hell. And I'm like, because you put on that glove, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I noted that dialogue also. I don't know, maybe due to the fact that he's got that robotish helmet. That's the reason his English is so stilted and strange. Oh, you think he's like maybe not speaking English. It's a translation device that is in his like Punisher chest emblem that turns into his whole head thing. Oh, I wasn't going that far, but yeah, let's let's say that. It's, nobody says, I am no longer needed, therefore I go. Yeah, that sounds like a translation error. I think he's got Google Translate hooked up to that thing. He's probably just speaking, I don't know, Zandian, Esperanto, whatever they speak in the Church of Blood. Yeah, and, and that's just how it translates. That's what I thought. That's not what I thought, but that's what I think now. I like that. It is also weird. It makes him seem like a more pensive, brooding character than just like, a henchman. And I'd like to believe that that's being set up in some way, that he's maybe going to turn on the Church of Blood, but I don't have a lot of confidence that it's going anywhere. Yeah, me neither. But um, 
I guess we'll get into this later. He does have some some pretty nice uh, outside underpants. He really does. What did you think of the story, Sisters? Well, I don't understand why Commander is so surprised when Starfire comes back to fight. Well, she thought Starfire was dead for most of it. No, not the surprise that she's alive. Once she realizes that, she's just like, but all this violence is going to destroy this beautiful planet that I've just taken over. (laughs) I can't believe anybody would do such a thing. Yeah, there's a bunch going on in this story. First of all, the art in this one is by Rick Leonardi doing the pencils. You get Romeo Tangal doing the ink, so there is some kind of continuity with that in terms of the general feel of the characters. But it is a different look than the first story. And I feel like that kind of makes sense. It looks a little bit cartoony, but the fact that the whole story takes place on an alien planet, I think it kind of works in that way. Or actually a couple of alien planets, because some of it is on Okara. I liked the parallels that it sets up running between what Commander's doing and thinking and what Starfire's doing and thinking. But you're right. It is weird that Commander is like, why is she coming here and wrecking my shit? Also, both her and Starfire think to themselves, there's never been war on Tamaran before. This is terrible. That makes no goddamn sense. They are a race of warriors. That is like their defining characteristic as a species, as we have been presented with them. Unless they are all just colonizers, in which case, fuck those guys. I hope their place does get wrecked. (laughs) Yeah, I guess all the wars were off-world, which doesn't sound great for them. It also doesn't seem like that was the case. We saw, like, the farty Godzilla monsters ravaged their planet with war until meander capitulated yeah that part doesn't make any sense i did notice there were some pretty fun names going on not just with characters but with a specific city that made me think okay now you're just fucking with me marf wolf oh the spiciest of cities (laughs) cinnamon (laughs) yep it's next to all spice (laughs) with a apostrophe I already don't remember. I think I did look it up at one point what Starfire's mom is supposed to be named, but I think that her new name has to be Carta Mom. Oh, that's pretty good. Thank you. It's terrible, but thank you. And honestly, I think Starfire should just let her Carta Mom run the show because her plan is to put King Meander back on the throne. He was a shitty, shitty king and a bad guy, and he doesn't particularly care he's clearly completely given up on everything and is just like done the mental equivalent of putting on his regal sweatpants and is just sitting this shit out on okara why do you want that guy to be king even she's starting to question it if she doesn't want to rule the planet i don't know make captain papadopoulos king or make her cardamom be the queen yeah i know it's she's setting this plan in motion that's going to result in the vast destruction of of property but probably lives also and Mm -hmm. she does have this panel where she's just like hmm maybe my dad isn't gonna do a good job i feel like i haven't thought this through all the way anyway let's attack yeah what do you mean maybe your dad did a bad job when he kind of gave a shit and now he definitely doesn't give a shit and you're wrecking the joint to put him back on the throne i understand wanting vengeance on your older sister i mean that's been a motivation much of my life Um, (laughs) i'm kidding meg partly Um, 
But I mean, at some point, pay attention to what you're doing. Because the one thing that I really liked about this issue is it looks like overall Commander is doing a pretty good job. Did you get that impression? I get the impression that she keeps saying what a great job she's doing. But we also see her not just setting things up in terms of war, but it looks like she's like doing some WPA type shit. She set up an irrigation system. She is clearly paying attention to the small details of running the planet that from his attitude, you definitely got the impression that Meander wasn't. There's definitely some shit going on where she's just like, all right, so we need to do this. I'm going to negotiate a peace with the Omega Men so that we have a stronger, solid government. Like, she is actually interested in governing, not just ruling. And I think that's an interesting twist to put on things. Mm -hmm. It does seem like she's doing some, like, New Deal type shit, too. Like, she talks about the irrigation system and getting supplies to this other section. The irrigation thing did throw me off a little bit because wasn't the whole thing that nobody wants to be a farmer on this whole planet? Yeah, and I guess there's a couple different ways to read that section where when I first read it, what jumped out at me was that their food crops were failing and she's kind of scrambling to, you know, get production back up. And then also, yeah, she's trying to forge an alliance with the Omega Men, but it looks like it could go one way or the other. Primus isn't super keen on it. So involved in governance, yes. Successful, to be determined. Yeah. I did like that she made sure nobody was in that city before she blew it up. That seems like a step in the right direction for her. Yep, that was a good move. Although I'm not sure telling her parents that there was nobody in the city was the good move, though. Why would you bother informing them of that? If the whole point is to make it look like you're serious and you might do anything, they had no way of knowing that city was unoccupied. Make a much bigger statement if it wasn't. And doesn't cost you anything to know that it was. Good good move in a humanitarian sense. Bad move in a strategic, people-should-be-scared-of-me sense. Mm-hmm. I did like the final panel, though, where it's her and Starfire in different cities that have been ravaged, in the same pose, thinking the exact same thought. Once Tamaran was paradise, but she has turned it into hell. But I will fight you, sister. I'll fight you until paradise is regained. They both stand there and dramatically declare that to themselves. And I really like that parallel that's setting up. And it is making Commander a more nuanced character, which is, I think, something that they've been hinting at for a few issues now and we're starting to see more of it and it does make me honestly curious where they're going with it yeah likewise because i also feel like things are maybe headed in the direction that starfire is going to have to come home and if so maybe she can convince her sister not to be such a knucklehead her sister will do a better job than dad in the driver's seat yeah the bar has been lowered pretty far i mean Maybe that's what fucked up the uh, the irrigation system. <laughs> Is, uh, the bar of leadership that Meander was trying to set went so far underground that it disrupted the water main. Yeah, that is entirely possible if a metaphor could have such strength. Yeah, I think that's how metaphors work. I mean, on Tamaran, anyway. Mm -hmm. If it's strong enough, it has a physical manifestation. Mm -hmm. It's got extra apostrophes in it. That makes it extra strong. Ah. Yeah, that water table didn't have a chance. No way. Uh, another thing that 
illustrated the potential softening of Commander was the way she reacted to the end of the gladiatorial fight she was watching. You would expect, given her characters, it's been established in the past, that when the one is like, all right, now I'm going to kill this guy that I just defeated, her to be like, sweet, go for it. I'm into that. But she's like, no, spare his life. You'll both be good leaders. I don't know. I'm coming around on this Blackfire. Well, I disagree with her murdering most of her family policy, but I kind of am learning to respect her murder King Meander policy. I think her logic is flawed, though, where those two guys are fighting and the one guy's like, hey, can I kill this dude? And she's like, no, if you don't kill him, he'll like you more later. And I'm like, really? Because if the dude who almost got killed heard that whole thing, he wouldn't think like, oh, this guy gave me a second chance. He'd be like, oh, he didn't kill me because he was ordered not to, but he really wanted to. Right? <laughs> She's like, he'll be forever loyal to you. I'm like, eh, I don't think it works like that. No, you're right. So, I mean, she still has some leadership kinks to work out there. Look, I didn't kill you, <laughs> therefore, you're totally loyal. Look, I was ordered not to kill you, so now we're best friends, right? Which brings us to friends and foes. This is the most artistically distinct story. It's penciled and inked by Tom Mandrake. What did you think of the art in this? I had a similar takeaway, I think, as you did, where there were some panels that were great, you know, and really stood out just due in part to how distinctly different they are than the art style that we're used to, like the opening panel with the buildings in the background and the big yellow moon. and It just has this really pensive feel to it. Yeah. But then on the following page, it zooms in onto Cyborg and Beast Boy's faces as they're having a conversation. And I was like, whoa. Specifically, the panel that bothered me. And most of it, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of different. It's very, it's much more stylized. But so much of the story is told through the lens of madness of the Freshmaker that I think that kind of makes sense. But, and I'm not entirely sure why it really borderline pissed me off as much as it did. There is a picture of Cyborg in which he looks like a worried cartoon dog. And I was just like, that's not an expression you would see on his face. I understand that he's going through some shit and you can show that and that has been shown in different ways. But in that panel, it really looks like he should be saying, I don't know, Davy, And it really, really bothered me. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Is it the one that's immediately after the opening page? Yes, the close-up on his face. Yeah, he has a puppy dog eye thing going on. It's weird and it's jarring, and I think part of it is seeing... I mean, he's the only black character in the book. He's one of the few black superheroes at DC at the time. And you see him looking worried and deferentially towards Beast Boy in a way that is not what their relationship is, and also is just uncomfortable, frankly. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it really bothered me. There's uh, another thing there, too, which is the text, where the reason that he's looking that way is because he's musing to Beast Boy, is it unmanly to say that I love the Titans? Yeah, the way his face is illustrated makes that read differently. And you also have the fact that between these two pages, there's like, I think we have a mebby count of four, all coming from Cyborg, all in just these two pages. Whatever else we've had from Cyborg in the past, 
he's always been a pretty confident character. And to have that completely stripped away from him is jarring. And I don't think intentional or consistent with his character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what they're going for is like two guys talking about emotions they don't normally talk about. Like, I love the Titans mm -hmm. and I miss them and they were like a family and I want my family back. But it came off making Cyborg really kind of weak. Yeah, I think the intention was to show him being emotionally vulnerable, but instead it ends up making him look helpless in a way that I think is extra disturbing in a story in which he does not literally have agency over his own body. That being said, I really did like a lot of the art in this. Specifically, on the next page, there's a picture of Mentos that is tremendous. I like Tom Mandrake's art. I'm not super familiar with it. In my mind, I always think of him as a Swamp Thing artist, and I don't think he did that much work on Swamp Thing. Uh, I think it's just that his name is Tom Mandrake, and I can see Alan Moore being into naming a character that or talking about Mandrake rooter shit because he's a wizard, you know? Mm -hmm. And a Mandrake kind of looks like a Swamp Thing. Yeah, totally. Like the shape of the root. Speaking of Swamp Thing... I think in a previous episode, I had talked about the fact that what had driven Mentos, uh, was it four or five rats mad, was the events of Swamp Thing 50. And I guess I had the timeline wrong because this is leading into Swamp Thing 50. So I think we were supposed to infer that whatever had driven him over the edge had happened during Crisis with uh, John Constantine. Not going to get used to saying it that way, but apparently it is Constantine. Yeah, and Constantine does refer to uh, Swamp Thing in that panel where uh, Mentos is like, hey, what took you so long? And he said he was held up helping a rather mossy friend of his. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cute. I don't think Wolfman has John Constantine's dialogue down, really. I mean, honestly, frankly, it's weird to see him apologize for being late and seem to mean it. Um, but I was still happy to see John Constantine show up. There's not a ton in terms of story in this. Mentos takes over Cyborg, makes Beast Boy fight him. Beast Boy fights him, doesn't kill him. And then John Constantine shows up at the end. That's pretty much it, right? Yep. It was a little bit weird to see Beast Boy have a complete 180 on his previous stance on quitting the Titans, where he had been the one that was gung-ho about, this team is nothing. We don't need this team. Just me and Cyborg. Friends till the end and the heck with the rest of these bozos. And now there's some kind of erasure of that where he's just saying like, no, I can't believe this is happening. I never wanted our time with the Titans to end. Feels like when I lost Doom Patrol before. Yeah, that's a really abrupt uh, switcheroo. Mm -hmm. He turns into a fun array of animals, though. He does. They're drawn a little weirdly from just what I'm used to. Yeah, it depends on the animal, though. Some of them are drawn in a much more stylized manner than others. But uh, yeah, there's a weird fluidity to the animals that we don't always see. It's a, a really like a very sketchy kind of style. Mm -hmm. Lots of shadow lines that are put in kind of rough. I also found it funny that the most gentle way that Beast Boy could think of to subdue Cyborg is to turn into a kangaroo and dropkick him in the chest. Well, his imagination is maybe not the strongest. It, it is interesting. I wonder to what extent when he turns into animals, he turns into a photorealistic version of that animal or just what his understanding of the animal is. 
Like, yeah, how much of that is artistic interpretation on his part? Like, if he thinks that a Triceratops only has one horn, does it just have one horn? I don't know. We do also see that he turns into a Triceratops, which is fun. Triceratops, did I somehow miss that? Yeah, right above the kangaroo. Oh, you're right. Well, I didn't even register dinosaur, but that's totally a Triceratops. I was just Mm -hmm. thinking like, oh, that is a really weird looking rhinoceros. (laughs) Well, I like that right above that he has turned into a cat, but he specifically looks like he's turned into a cat from a motivational poster. Like he's he's saying, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's saying, I got to hang in there. He's got those big like eyeballs like he's on a velvet painting. Sad cat. Mm hmm. And then we get the wrap-up where Jericho MacArthur parks it and leaves his painting of a beautiful sunrise out in the rain to get washed away. Boo. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, or are you ready to move into the minutiae? I think we can cover everything in the minutiae. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, what do you feel like starting with, Cory? Why don't we mix it up and start with the uh, president of the drama club? All right. Which character in this comic book do you feel was acting, or rather, overacting, in the most dramatic fashion? So at first, I was thinking it would be Dick because he's so shocked at um, Raven's new sunny disposition. Mm -hmm. But I think that that one panel wasn't enough to cinch it. So what I also noticed was that in that panel and the ones following, Arella has her hands active in pretty much every single scene she's depicted in, usually doing something around her face in dramatic fashion. So I gave it to Arella for excessive gesturing and mouth covering and hand wringing i think that's fair i I think you're right about dick not quite earning that i think you would probably be pretty surprised if your goth friend was suddenly wearing a sundress (laughs) which is essentially what's happened yeah It, it came down to two people for me i was initially leaning towards jericho for painting a beautiful sunset and then leaving the painting out in the pouring rain and walking away from it and letting the paint run to make a dramatic statement. That seemed very drama club to me. But ultimately, I actually have to go with John Constantine. Really? Because he is setting up a meeting with Mentos, but for the meeting, he's like, all right, let's see, we can meet at a coffee shop, or, you know what, why don't you just meet me on top of George Washington's head on Mount Rushmore? (laughs) why (laughs) oh man i had just assumed that was mentos's choice but uh could be constantine i think it's constantine i think in their relationship constantine is calling the shots so yeah i i'm pretty sure that's his choice and also i mean just having tried smoking them as a teenager because of john constantine i can definitively say that there's no reason to smoke silk cuts except for you like the sound of their name So uh, I think both of those things just lead to uh, John Constantine getting president of the drama club. He is smoking for effect, not for flavor. And he uh, set up a rendezvous on top of George Washington's head on Mount Rushmore. 
That is a dramatic location. It really is. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy in this issue? I don't know if we've talked about this before, but the brooch that Mother Mayhem uses to keep her cloak on, I realize is a bee with a backwards bee kind of hooking together for a, like a brother blood emblem. Oh, no, I had not noticed that before. And it's also in the um, like the circle that is surrounding the giant statue of him all the way around. And it had a very, like, it reminded me of, I don't know, Chanel or like one of those logos where the initials are used to create a design. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you'd normally, I think, see the bees be back to back, but they are uh, front to front, like two butts backing into each other. <laughs> yep. Weird. Yeah, we should probably talk about the Confessor's outfit, I think. He's basically got a Punisher logo on his chest, but then the skull of it expands out to form big shoulder pads and a radiation suit helmet. And then he's got some big swashbuckler cuffs and some uh, some bell-bottom sleeves. It's a heck of a look. Yeah, and don't forget the shiny scaled underpants. Oh, who could? That's, a, that's quite a look. It really is. Overpants, we decided those are called, right? When you wear the uh, underpants outside of the tights? My bad. Overpants. Yep. Also, I wanted to draw attention to Commander's Beardo-in-Chief, I guess. I'm not sure what the guy's name is, but he is the dude who is following her around. I think he's probably her uh, chief of staff, maybe. But he's a Beardo who is wearing a bright blue and yellow outfit that has like a Roman soldier style kilt and big like Nighthawk style arched cape. It is a heck of a look. Looks like he's carrying a Galactus helmet around with him under his armpit too. So it's a very elaborate armored outfit for him. I like that one a lot. Very fancy. I also liked on Tamaran the two guys that are fighting in the arena. I think Maria... Sorry, Mari Ya, the more powerful one, has a, a headband that's just basically a giant down arrow <laughs> over his face. Yeah, you can't read it, but it does say, I'm with stupid. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked that a lot. I also really like that his name is Maria, and it makes me want to kind of sing West Side Story. <laughs> the West Side Story song. Yeah. Once again on Tamaran, at least on a view screen on Tamaran, I think it's interesting that even in space, the beret is the symbol of the revolutionary. Primus wearing a beret just seems really weird to me. It does look very military, his beret. Yeah, it's it's a very like Che Guevara type look that he's rocking. And I don't think we've seen a space beret before, and it kind of works for him. Yeah, it's cool. It's got a little Omega logo on it, on the floppy part. Mm-hmm. Good look. Also, in that same page where we see a lot of emoting from Blackfire, have we noticed before that she's wearing, like, a platinum heavy chain link chain around her neck? I'm not sure. Maybe that is, like, the sigil of her emperorness or something? Because I think that is new. It's, like, very industrial like actual like chains you would use to chain up a i don't know what like a tugboat yeah it's like a tugboat chain but she made it into a necklace <laughs> good for her yeah i wonder if that is like the 
crown of office. Like everybody's wearing fancy Galactus hats, so that's not going to cut it for a crown. Doesn't want to mess up her giant flowing space hair. Yeah, I wonder if that's the sign of being the emperor. If she yoinked that from her shitty dad. Could be. The chain of command. That's definitely what it is, and that is what it's called. Well, I think, Corey, that it's time we took this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you think is worthy of note? Mine that came to the top of the list was Mentos calling Beast Boy a lying brat. Hmm. It's in the page where Beast Boy is in the form of the gorilla, and Mentos is sort of showing up as an apparition, taunting them. Mm-hmm. And he says, you're a liar, brat. I think that's a good one. I decided to go with a couple of things that Dick says as he is in his uh, full stripper Fidel Castro mode and fighting off the acolytes of the Church of Blood. He first says, Halloween's over, guys. You don't need your fright masks anymore. Oh, those are your real faces? Boy, am I embarrassed. (laughs) That was pretty fun. That very much reminds me much more of the younger Robin, Dick Grayson type of banter. And I thought it was nice to see that. We also see him say, sorry to fight and run, ugly, but I really gotta... And then he gets knocked unconscious. But I appreciated that return to banter from a admittedly stressed out Dick Grayson. I, I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, I was I was happy to see that too. It reminded me of the old, uh, more fun-loving Robin iteration. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? As usual, my timestamp is a bit of a stretch. But what I came up with was the influence of technology that was in the popular media at the time showing up in the artwork and it's the scene Hmm. in which the spaceships there's like these kind of brown ones with rectangles and then these blue ones Mm -hmm. in the starfire story and those blue ones look to me very much modeled after a mix of an x-wing fighter and the space shuttles totally yeah i can see that i decided to go with a passage of dialogue that I believe was influenced by a popular song at the time. When Arella is talking to Mother Mayhem, Arella says, Why are you doing this to them? Why can't you let them alone? They're only children. And Mother Mayhem says, They're the future. Because she believes the children are our future. That's a Mad Max song? What? I, I think you're thinking of We Don't Need Another Hero Beyond the Thunderdome. No, the greatest love of all was the number one song in the country at the time this was written, I believe. Whitney Houston? Yeah, the Whitney Houston, I believe the children are our future. Oh, yeah. It's the first words of it, and like that was immediately where my mind went when I heard that phrase. It turns out that song was actually first written and released and was a minor hit in 1977. Do you want to guess who that song was written for? Like who it was written to be sung by? Uh, no, who it was written for to be kind of a theme song of. Um, seven, 1977? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't. Muhammad Ali. What? Yeah, it was for his movie The Greatest, which came out in 1977. 
Oh, shit. It was the theme song for that movie. And I love that idea. I love the idea of a movie about him learning to love himself. Wow. And his love of children. I think that's awesome. And I had definitely had no idea about that. Yeah, I would not. I would not have thought to associate that song with him. Well, to be fair, I wouldn't have thought to associate that song with Mad Max. But yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting to learn. All right. Space shuttles and Whitney Houston hits. Yeah. Have I brought up on this show, you know, the, the quote, the float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Um, you know what else floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee? A bee. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. So, I mean, he could have just said, float like a bee, also sting like a bee, or even just shortened it to, you know, I'm a lot like a bee. (laughs) I think his version also works, but, uh, you know, just something to play with if you want to do another take of that at any point, Muhammad Ali. (laughs) I'm a bee. I'll just say that. (laughs) Well, no, he's not a bee, but he's a lot like a bee in at least two regards. Simile and metaphor have always been hard for me. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of all Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad, and who was your Beast Boy? So, ironically enough, in this issue, my Aqualad was Beast Boy. Same. He did a good job. Yeah, it was weird. He didn't, I think, say anything creepy, and um, he tried real hard to rescue his friend who was being mind-controlled to kill him which has got to be a real challenge. Yes, he gently kicked his friend as an enormous kangaroo, turned into a triceratops, turned into a a vast array of animals, did a really good job, and yeah, was put in the position of having to ride that line between having to defeat somebody who is badly injured without further injuring them. And he did it, and he did it under emotional duress as the entire time he was being yelled at by his stepdad and being told that he was responsible for the death of everyone he loved. Yeah, Beast Boy did a great job. I had uh, Starfire as a runner-up because she was implementing only military targets in her, her fighting back. Yeah. But that wasn't quite good enough. I had Starfire as my Beast Boy, actually. Because she was causing a great deal of destruction to put a bad ruler on the throne. I understand wanting vengeance, but she really just was not thinking things through. And have a little chat with your your shitty dad. He he doesn't want to be king. He was a bad king. Why do you want him to be king again? There's got to be a better reason than it's hereditary or he used to be. I mean, monarchy's shitty anyway, but... uh. Yeah, that kind of reinforcement of it at the expense of her planet. And I am, I think, more than you of the opinion that Blackfire sucks, but she's actually doing a pretty good job and certainly more invested in it than Meandar ever was. Yeah, I do agree that Starfire should have halted the attack when she was having that moment of doubt about putting her dad back in charge and figured that out first. Like, that was a bad move but in terms of conducting the warfare in a way that doesn't hurt the general populace that seems like it's going okay yeah i guess who did you have as your beast boy i had dick because he basically got himself into the same trap that he was in before and then uh, immediately got brainwashed or he was always in that trap and had only been 
given the illusion of freedom. Like, he never woke up. He's still a sheeple. Or a shurson. Oh, he got inceptioned. Uh-huh. Well, also bad job. Fair enough. What was your favorite panel? Yeah, this was a little harder than it normally is, but I think my favorite was from the Dick and Raven story, and it's one that we've talked about a couple times already, where he's passed out in Raven's lap, and there's this really creepy, looming statue of Brother Blood with the uh, double butt emblem all around it. It has a very sort of uh, grand, like, 80s action horror movie feel to it. Yeah, it's a very nice image. I liked that one a lot, but... As I think I said before, I think my favorite images are from the Tom Mandrake-drawn story with uh, Beast Boy and Cyborg. The one where Beast Boy is turned into a lion is so good. It is such a cool-looking lion. I read a little bit about Tom Mandrake, and he lists his major influence as being growing up reading 60s Marvel comic books, and also... The, I think it's like the Brandywine School of Painters, but like Maxfield Parish type stuff. And you can totally see that influence in this story. The scene where Beast Boy is a lion, it is such a cool looking lion. And the layouts throughout that are really good. But I think my ultimate favorite is the one that I call a uh, Melty Face Fresh Maker. Oh, yeah. You see his face being pulled apart into cosmic energy like... He is at one with the universe, kind of, but not able to keep his shit together and handle that. And it's a really, really powerful image, and it's really cool looking and surreal in a way that really makes sense for the story. And I really like that panel. Yeah, you can just imagine being an artist that's given the creative direction of, okay... So the guy's got to see the atomic structure of all things in a way that would drive other people mad, but he doesn't think he's mad, but he really is a little bit. Okay, go do that. Right, and he nailed it. So, yeah, I think he nailed Mentos. He did a great job with several of the Beast Boy animals. Some of them were, were drawn more sketchily, but I think in a way that made their shape seem more fluid, in a way that makes sense for Beast Boy's powers. And I also really liked the uh, the way he drew the moon with all of these weird motion lines around it when we first get that story. I think it set the tone for the fact that, yep, this is going to be drawn a little bit different, but just go with it. And I thought it worked really well. Yeah, the, uh, that Mento image is really well done. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wapoot! In... The year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go by the date of the reprints of these, and the month of our Lord, September, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoot! So, we know that Aqualad has some friends in high places and has befriended various celebrities over the years, and um, also is a fan of sport. So, all these things came together in September of 87, when he had struck up a little friendship with uh, the hick from French Lick himself, Larry the Legend, Larry Bird of the Boston Celtic. And they are out having a few beers, and Aqualad had had quite a few, and was giving Larry a really hard time about eating his, you know, 38 liters of ice cream and seven wedding cakes. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I bet... <laughs> I bet you're so out of shape from doing that that 
you can't get uh, 50 free throws in a row. And if you do, I will get you 10 wedding cakes and 50 liters of ice cream. <laughs> and Larry Bird was like, I would be a fool not to take this bet. Um, being a really confident guy, he had won uh, three consecutive MVP awards um, in the years previous and was a three-time NBA championship with the Celtics previous also. So he very confident. And uh, yeah, sure enough, between September uh, 9th and 23rd, he uh, beat uh, Aqualad's um, bet by nine, getting uh, 59 free throws in a row. And then Aqualad begrudgingly had to pretty much wipe out his savings account to get all that ice cream and wedding cake for uh, Larry Bird. Because, you know, wedding cakes are not cheap. No, they are not. I love that Larry Bird loved to eat wedding cakes. The quote from him, apparently, that I found was, you know they was going to be good. I mean, who would F up a wedding cake? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right? I think that is delightful. And was certainly one thing that Aqualad was up to in September of 1987. Other than that, Aqualad was still kind of on a downswing. I mean, he was still grieving the loss of Aqua Girl, Tula, who died during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. So he sought solace in the friendship of some members of a very exclusive club that he belongs to. Now, we know one exclusive club he belongs to was being a founding member of the Teen Titans, but another even more exclusive group that he belongs to is a group that call themselves the TPBs of the DCU. That's the Tight Perm Bros. <laughs> It's a secret organization that consists of Aqualad and Jericho and Reander. Tom Jones. <laughs> uh, Tom Jones is their patron saint. Okay. So Aqualad was talking with Reander and he was getting some hairstyling tips because Tamaran's hairstyling technology is way beyond that of Earth. And he was telling Reander that, you know, I've just been kind of down lately. Um, and Reander was like, well, I can totally understand that. You've been through a lot. You just need to take some time for yourself. What I like to do is I've got all of these tapes of Earth broadcasts. Uh, re remember, I learned sign language from Big Bird in one of those. So I can uh, I can kick those down to you if you just want to chill out and watch some old tapes of PBS. And Aqualad was like, you know what? That sounds really, really good. So he ended up just staying at home and he binged a bunch of episodes of i claudius and he binged a bunch of episodes of reading rainbow and he just got really into them and was starting to feel a little bit better but was still like you know what i'm just going to take the month and, and just stay in watch some television and he saw that a new star trek was about to start up star trek the next generation and then he got very excited because of course the last star trek that there had been was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And so he was just like, oh man, it's about humpback whales? And I wonder if Scotty's gonna say, computer, hello, computer, <laughs> because I love that. I can't wait to watch this show. And so he tuned in on September 28th to see Star Trek, The Next Generation. And he was a little bit disoriented. Just he had been kind of zonked out from watching so much television and was in its own little world. But in I, Claudius, Patrick Stewart played a character called Sejanus, who was Tiberius's 
chief of staff, basically, and was murderous and killed a dude named Drusius and slept with his wife and, and then murdered all of these people. And so when he saw that, he just kept yelling at the screen, Look out, Reading Rainbow! Sejanus is gonna fuck your wife! Oh, no. And he was so freaked out and he couldn't couldn't get into the show, didn't really enjoy it. By the end of the show, he was starting to come around on it and was like, okay, that's not Sejanus, it's a different character. LeVar Burton was never named Reading Rainbow. I don't know what I was thinking with that. But he calmed down and he decided, you know what, I'm going to give the show another, another shake. And so he decided to watch the next episode. And that was the one that really hooked him because in, in that one, uh, there, there's some robot fucking. And he thought that was neat. So that is what Aqualad was probably up to in September of 1987. Oh my. Yeah. Have you seen I, Claudius? I have not. Man, Patrick Stewart is super duper evil in it. And also like bones down hard. Oh my. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. It was my pleasure. And thank you for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. That's T-I-T-A-N. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. And we're all up on all of the social media type places in the places you might expect to look for us. And some you might not. Uh, So yeah, you can uh, just... Type in Tighten Up the Defense, and uh, we're up on the Facebook, the Tumblr, the Tweetor, the, uh, all the things. I've been a little bit quiet on them lately. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Um, for the month of June, all of our donations are going to go to bail relief funds, and then uh, actually Lisa and I are going to match that amount in donations as well, so... Just know that's where your money's going to go to if you support us on Patreon this month. If you do, you also get access to a bunch of bonus material. You get access to the monthly show that Lisa and I co-host called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is our Howard the Duck monthly podcast. I've also been making a ton of little video reviews of classic comic books. I've been slowing down on that lately, but I'm going to try to ramp it back up again. And so there's a whole bunch of those. And there's also a bunch of other bonus podcast material up there. And if you donate, you get access to all of that stuff. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, a great way to do that is by leaving us a review in a place where reviews of things can be left. You know, your uh, your applications and whatnot, although if you just want to, you know, write a letter and tell a friend or write a letter to your congressman and t- tell them what your thoughts on things are, but then just as a tagline, end it with, uh, also, you should listen to Tighten Up the Defense. That's probably a, a waste of your time, that last part, but you should probably write to your congressman about other things. Anyway, we've gotten some really lovely reviews. Let's take a look at a recent five-star review that is on Apple Podcasts. Terrific! Five stars! And that is by Ogre from Stabbing Contest. Deeply funny, playfully bizarre, and intensely listenable. 
Hub and Corey are fun and interesting hosts, and they really bring the material that they cover alive in the best way possible. Thanks, Ogre from Stabbing Contest. It's certainly preferable than us bringing it alive in the worst way possible. Like in some kind of, a uh, like, uh, demon machine powered by, uh, Zach Wingman. We're not doing that. Nope. And, uh, I'm glad that you appreciate that we're not doing that. Because we could. And maybe we will, if we don't get some more reviews. Up. So, you know, you guys are playing with fire. Anyway, thanks for leaving us a nice review. Oh, man. That's usually use the carrot, not the stick, but okay. Yeah, I think I'm still using the carrot, just in a different way. Depends where you put the carrot. Leave us a review and you get a free <laughs> carrot to do it as you wish. I'm not giving people carrots, Corey. That postage is going to add up. Okay. Fair enough. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> that's just, let's just start over. No, that's fine. Uh, okay. I'll be back next week where I'll once again be joined by Osvaldo Ayola to uh, cover the wrap-up of the Omega the Unknown story in The Defenders. Uh, we had a great time talking to him last week, and I'm looking forward to that. And Corey will be back in a couple of weeks to uh, talk some more new Teen Titans. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Until then, um... Here's hoping you don't get kicked gently by a giant kangaroo. I hope you don't get kicked at all by a giant kangaroo. But I guess if you insist that they get kicked by a giant kangaroo, as you do, Corey... Let it be gentle. It's best that it is not particularly forceful. Yep. Fair enough. Thanks, guys. Bye! Thanks. Bye. Bye.